Support for A Life of Dogs is brought to you by Royal Canin. Royal Canin offers precise, effective nutrition for dogs based on size, age, breed, and to address specific needs. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. And by Dogtra, trusted by professionals. Dogtra ensures your training journey with durable training products, equipped with patented, accurate, and intuitive control to ensure the best experience. Join us, and together we can make every dog exceptional. To learn more, call 888-811-9111 or visit dogtra.com. Thanks for tuning in again to A Life of Dogs. We hope you enjoyed the first part of this doubleheader, Catching a Flight, which followed the story of Piper, the airport canine. Recently, Sudan, the last male northern white rhino, died. He was the last male of his subspecies, many of whom were wiped out by poachers. Animals like these are getting some special help to save them from extinction. In this episode, we explore an amazing story of dog teams hunting humans to protect some of the most iconic animals on earth. Chris Anderson starts us off with The Fearless Ones. Recently, the UN reported that up to 100 elephants are being slaughtered each day in Africa by poachers who are engaging in the illegal ivory trade. Animal poaching in Africa is at a crisis level and intervention is challenging. As such, teams are being trained to deploy in some of the most demanding and dangerous conditions to save these majestic animals. Taking on this task requires special dogs and people. After hearing this story, you will understand why we call these teams the fearless ones. We start with Jay Crafter, an experienced dog trainer and the owner of Invictus Canine. Jay is a trainer of anti-poaching dog teams in Africa. So I was born and raised in Zimbabwe. Um, educated in everything. Uh, the political situation in Zimbabwe started changing around 1996, 1997. Uh, I decided um, to leave Zimbabwe and go and basically pursue my education in the UK. Not a lot of options for me, ended up joining the British Army. And then I joined the uh, Royal Army Veterinary Corps. The Royal Army Veterinary Corps is an operational branch of the British Army that is responsible for the training and care of animals. Um, never looked back, loved every second of it, you know, made some good friends, and I you know, learned a skill set that I'm still using today, so I'm very grateful for it. I was 17, I was very young, probably didn't know what I was getting myself into, but uh, yeah, it all worked out in the end. I served for eight years, uh, decided to get out and go back to Zimbabwe, which I did. Uh, I left the army, uh, and then I got offered a job working in Iraq, um, working at Bayat, the Baghdad International Airport, running the kennel there. So I went over for that, did six months, and then while I was there, I bumped into a few dog handlers, and um, you know we see share training areas and things like that. Next thing, I got a some random email offering me a job working in Fort Leonardwood in Missouri. You know, was totally confused. Um, thought it was probably some Nigerian trying to like get money out of me and just ignored it. A few months later, the same thing happened again. Anyway, ended up being real. Went and worked for a company in Missouri. We were working with the, um, the engineers, kind of the uh, demining dogs. And uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, I was there for three months and a contract was secured down in San Antonio, Texas. And I was volunteers, I went down there and I was working on the specialized search dog program. And yeah, we were just training off lease detection dogs, um, explosive detection dogs uh, for Afghan, Iraq, IED detection basically. And that went really well, I loved it. I was down there for four years, decided to get into the uh, private sector, um, got into the IDD program, uh, I ran the uh, U.S. Army's Combat Tracker Dog Program, which was, I mean, the, the what I learned from tracking in Arizona and preparing dogs for Afghanistan really helped me out for a lot of the places where we're working today in Africa. So I'm grateful for that experience. But, um, you know, all of that kind of culminated, became a U.S. citizen, and that's when I decided that it was time for me to, you know, do my own thing. And I've always wanted to have my own company. That's when I set up Invictus Canine. And my very first job was to 
go to South Africa. My first contract was South Africa and just be an independent subject matter expert for um, elephants that have been trained to detect uh, TNT. And in Botswana, sorry, not Botswana, Angola, um, elephants are navigating minefields and they're walking through minefields and they're not getting blown up and other animals are. You heard right. In Angola, one of the world's most mine-contaminated countries, elephants have been observed navigating minefields safely, which is a skill they learned all on their own. Somebody thought, well, maybe they can smell the landmines, whatever it is. Let's see if they can uh, detect TNT. It's not that anybody's going to use it to go and do, you know, demining with, but it's, um, you know, there's there's something going on there. So I wanted to make sure it was, well, my job was to make sure that it wasn't going to be, um, you know, some dodgy, you know, elephant experiment, make sure that it was uh, good. And it was, it was great. It was very impressive. The elephants were successfully doing uh, double blinds and, um, yeah, it was, it was great. They could really do it. And so while I was there, I I took the opportunity to go home uh, to Zimbabwe to see family. And I met a couple of people there who put me in touch with the Frankfurt Zoological Society. And that was, I mean, just pure luck. I had no plans to get into anti-poaching. And, you know, there's there's a lot of issues in Africa. There's also a mindset that dogs can't be used in, in, uh, in the bush and that, uh, you know, they're too scared of lions. It's natural fear, snakes, all this stuff, and they just don't work. Uh, but, you know, again, that those same people have not really come across a true working animal. And, you know, one with the genetics and the drive and all the characters that we, sorry, characteristics that we desire in a, in a working dog. And, yeah, went down, met, met the project manager there. We had a coffee and we talked about it. And I said, yeah, you know, you need dogs and I can help you with that. And it just, it, it just went from there. Um, if it hadn't been for that program, we wouldn't be in any of the other countries we are now. They were super supportive. They put us in a good place. Um, it was it helped build our name, and I'm like eternally grateful to that work. Um, but um, that one led on to two more projects in Zambia, and then we started doing assessments of other areas where they were looking at potentially putting dogs in, and it's just grown from there. The use of dog teams in anti-poaching operations has grown considerably. We're in six different countries. We are working in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Namibia, Kenya, and Democratic Republic of Congo. These dog teams perform a variety of functions to impede the operations of poachers. Here Jay explains. So we have two primary capabilities, where it's the detection dogs and then the tracker dogs. Some of our programs, the dogs are dual trained, where they do both. Um, some of our programs are just have one or the other. The detection dogs are trained to fly into ivory, rhino horn, pangolin. The pangolin is the most trafficked mammal in the world. These gentle, cat-sized, nocturnal anteaters have large protective scales covering their bodies and are the only known mammal with this feature. They are hunted for their scales and meat and have been poached to critical numbers nearing extinction. Bushmeat, weapons and ammunition. So those are the six uh, primary odors. We have one dog that is also trained to find poison uh, that's used in the watering holes and stuff that the, like the elephants will go to. Like for example, in Wank in Zimbabwe, if 300 elephants get killed from a poisoning. Um, so in, like there's certain parts where they like us to train on the poison. But just being frank, it's just something I'm uh, very careful about exposing the dogs to because it's, it's very dangerous. And, you know, I like the handlers to be a bit experienced before we start, like, delving into the poison side of it. So there's six odors. We can do poison as a seventh, um, but like I said, not all the dogs are on that. Um, the tracker dogs, um, they're more of a, uh, like, a, a hot scent track dog. Um, so we try to get them up to about a six-hour-old age track. Um, obviously, that's in... Uh, like normal conditions and favorable conditions they can go older um, but it takes us about six to eight months to get them up to like to be
be consistent at that six hour old uh, track. Um, you know, so we teach a course and then we carry on with follow on training and continue to develop that uh, detection piece. Um, most of the areas where we're tracking in are national parks. So it's really favorable for us when it comes to um, putting the dog in the right place. So if you've got an, a, you know, like footprints on the ground or an entry point or a carcass or something, really there should be no other humans in there. Um, so our start points are always very clean and, you know, the dog gets onto that initial scent and then follows it. And it's, it's, it's not that complex, you know, working in that uh, environment. Um, depending on the time of the year, conditions can be very favorable, green grass on the ground. Um, but, you know, with the seasons changing, you have wet and dry season, basically. In the dry season, there's no grass. It's just rocks. Um, obviously, those conditions aren't favorable for the dog. So that can be quite, um, you know, dynamic in their uh, kind of skill set. Uh, but obviously, they acclimatize as the seasons change. Um, the tracks do go outside the park, and they end up in the villages. Um, we've had dogs, um, you know, doing pretty significant tracks, and they ended up tracking directly to the poacher's house. And they're inside their, their like, hut, like straw roof and they're butchering the animal inside that they had poached from the national park and that dog had to track through i mean a combination of scents with human scent goats cows chickens i mean kids running around uh, as soon as the team comes into the village everybody's attracted to it and they run over and they want to know what's going on and, um, but the dog took us right to the house which is pretty impressive um so we do try and train in the villages, uh, in the friendly villages, just to ensure that the dogs get exposed to it. Um, but like I said, most of our uh, most of our start points, at least, are in favourable conditions where there's no other human sense. It's not like we're tracking through the middle of a city. Um, it's always going to be a nice rural environment. They use various dog breeds for this type of work. Jay explains the pros and cons of the individual breeds. So the breeds that we like to use. Uh, my, my, my personal primary breed is a German Shepherd for the traffic detection. The reason being is the males generally uh, tend, I feel like they need a more experienced handler. So the guys that we're dealing with are, you know, they just, they come from a different background, a different culture. They don't look at dogs. Uh, like the way I did growing up with pets and stuff like that. So it's seen as a tool. It's something you tie to a tree and it warns you when there's a predator coming or when there's someone in the yard that should be there. Um, it's just some kind of a response. If something happens to it, they'll replace it immediately. No problem. There's no issues about that. So, I mean, it's literally seen as a tool, like a shovel or a pick or something like that. Um, so, you know, with that in mind, um, there's also a natural fear for bigger, you know, you know, the Malinois and German Shepherd, pointy-eared dogs, you know, they look at you for, because I don't know, they think you've got a Kong in your hand or whatever, but there's that intense gaze that they provide, and people are very fearful of that. So, you know, with the cultural differences, with the fear factor, you know, lack of confidence, um, you know, I feel like the German Shepherd is a good dog for it. Uh, we do a pretty hectic uh, selection piece during procurement, uh, just to make sure we have the right dogs, that they're balanced and they're not, uh, you know, showing any types of aggression towards the handler. Um, I, we do have Malinois. Uh, they've gone to the more experienced handlers. We've kind of spent some time with them, um, managed to kind of develop a lot earlier on, and uh, they're fine. They're great dogs, but generally, as a rule of thumb, for a tracker detection starting a brand new program. We go with the German Shepherds. They're more balanced. Uh, they tend to train better. Obviously, we're on a schedule, so we want to make sure, you know, we can, uh, you know, meet the client's, you know, request to finish the course in time. And, uh, you know, the German Shepherd seems to be the best dog for it. We go for a lightweight German Shepherd, so it's a very, uh, very uh, smaller than your typical dog, uh, German Shepherd. So 25 kilo, that's probably around you know, 50 to 55 pound dog. And the reason is we're looking for the dog that's going to track big distance. So we don't do one, two mile tracks. We do 10, 15 mile tracks. And that's just, that's a normal track. So 
you need to have the marathon runner, not the sprinter. So that's the, the kind of dogs that we look for. You know, they can pace themselves. They've got the drive uh, to push on for long periods. But again, they're not just crazy in the head, you know, completely out of control. Um, the couple of males that we have had in the kennels have, you know, they've created issues themselves, like whether it's an out problem or, um, you know, just some kind of like issue in the kennel perhaps or in the vehicle when people walking past, you know, we, and with the German shepherds, we see less of that. And so that's kind of like what we go for. If I find a nice Malinois, then I'll absolutely take it. So when we're doing our selection piece, we absolutely will select the best dog uh, that we find. If that happens to be a Malinois, so be it. Uh, but I do try to look for the smaller, light frame German Shepherds. Uh, and then once that program evolves, when they start bringing more dogs in, then we can promote those handlers, bring in Malinois, they can take on the males, and German Shepherds can go to the new handlers that are coming into the program. Um, we've got a Vizsla, um, we've got a Pointer. In South Africa, we've got a Vimarana. Um, he's a fantastic dog. He's jack of all trades. He, he can do pretty much everything. He's supporting um, the police down there. And yeah, so we've, like our airport program, for example, we've got two Malinois. There are, you know, the, the original plan was for them to be our workhorses working in the cargo area out back. Nobody's going to see them. They're just going to keep going. And then we've got the Vizsla and a pointer for upfront public space. Um, just easy on the eye, approachable. Get the guys walk around the terminal not to scare the living daylights out of everybody. Um, but they're both fantastic dogs in the back as well. You know, they're workhorses and they can do a good job there too. So again, it's not uh, breed specific. Um, I really enjoyed working that pointer been a while since I've trained one and she's a fantastic dog she's got a superb nose on her um, so from from a single purpose detection point of view I was um, very impressed with her and it's definitely a breed that I I would look at again the um, I mean the Malinois and the Shepherds and the Labradors to an extent it's a pretty consistent training plan so we can approach it um, the same every student you know will progress through the course at the same pace but with the Vizsla, uh, we found just with that kind of puppy behavior that they tend to show, that little crazy that they have, you know, we did have to adjust the training plan for him. And obviously there's a knock-on effect. So, you know, we are a, we're a business and we're training dogs, so we want to make sure that, you know, we can get everybody on the, the same sheet of music. Not only is this work demanding and difficult, even the training for the dogs is pretty intense. The dogs are all trained in the country. So my, 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 my process, I, I go to Holland. Um, you know, we go through our, our testing and our selection. Uh, I do some additional things that I, I don't normally do, um, going out to public spaces and farm areas around other animals and things like that, bigger animals. And then once I've selected my dogs, you know, Hank arranges all the transport and everything, I fly in country. Uh, like Zimbabwe, for example, and just wait for the dogs to arrive. Dogs land, and uh, we take them down to the new kennels, we let them settle for a day, and then we spend a month, just the trainers, working the dogs. There's no students or anybody else. We have some helpers, maybe laying tracks or something like that, but um, nothing crazy. And we literally train, the, we take the dogs on road walks. Uh, we'll just, we'll literally go for a 10 kilometer walk into the bush, and just expose the dogs to elephant, just different wildlife, predators, you name it. Um, as we drive around, if we see like a, a serious predator, like a pride of lions, you know, we'll get the dogs downwind, we'll bring the vehicle up nice and close, let the dogs get used to the smells. If they move off, we'll take the dogs out, let them walk around the area where they were lying, see how the dogs react, and just make it part of everyday life. You know, so I'm a big, big believer in, uh, you know, you want to train in home turf, so if you're going to work in Africa, you need to train the dogs in Africa for when they become operational. There's no point in me training a dog in North Carolina, taking it over there, and I find out, you know, I've got issues with him. You know, he's used to deer and all this kind of stuff, and he looks fine around animals, and then I get over there, and I've got problems. And that first month, it gives me plenty of time to weed out any issues and really, like, slowly just expose the dog to, um, you know, to all the 
I mean, just the environment. The environment itself is so hostile, and they're just they're just not used to it. Every dog we get gets there, the pads rip open in a few days just from the hot earth. Um, you know, they're obviously high drive dogs, so they're running around trying to get everything, and you know, they start hurting the feet pretty quickly. So we they inevitably go into kennel rest, but they toughen up pretty quick, and then we can carry on with the uh, road walks. But well, I mean, the dogs are going from typically from winter in Holland. The, the, the projects normally, you know, there's a six-month rotation, so we head out there January, and then maybe again July, August. Um, so the January dogs are coming from winter, like one of the hottest months of the year in Africa. So it depends on Southern Africa at least. So there's a huge adjustment. But what's nice is because we're doing those initial tracks, for example, that are less than 100 meters long, just short, sharp, high reps, developing the dog. You know, we can work the dog as he acclimatizes at the same time. I'm not asking him to go out there and do, you know, two kilometer, three kilometer track uh, in the heat when he's come out of Holland. So they develop nice and slowly um, as they acclimatize at the same time. Um, while we do that uh, four weeks of training with the dogs, we do our handler selection. That's a week long. And then um, obviously we expose the, the potential handlers to the dogs and see how they react. They'll lay tracks for us as part of handler selection, and you know we're looking at how they, uh, you know, pay attention to instructions and follow through with it and all that stuff. They don't handle the dogs, but we carry on training the dogs uh, during that phase. And then once we've selected the handlers, you know it'll be uh, it's a twelve week course. Day one, uh, the dogs have the basics in um, detection, basics in obedience, basic, and they'll do a one mile track, one hour old, and we can build from that over the 12 weeks. That's just a nice, comfortable, um, you know, foundation that we've put into the dog so the hands don't want to ruin anything uh, very quickly, but, um, you know, we stay on top of them for the rest of the course. These new canine recruits have to get accustomed to some very intense environmental conditions in Africa. But, I mean, the first time a dog sees an elephant, I mean, there's... There's anxiety, certainly. The dog's looking at the animal. You can see his hackles go up. Uh, it's just not something I've ever come across and, you know, can't comprehend that. I mean, I'm assuming it's what, you know, kind of what's going through their little heads. Um, but, I mean, for example, in Ghana Resort, Zimbabwe, there's 13,000 elephants there. We, we walk around. There's, there's elephants everywhere. I mean, you just, you, you know, if you walk in a line for an hour, you'll come across two or three herds, no problem. So they get used to it. It just becomes part of like everyday life. The kennels, the kennels will have elephant herds like walking past the kennels, uh, zebras. Um, we had a pack of wild dogs uh, chase down an impala, kill an impala, maybe 100 meters away from the kennels. The kennels on an airstrip, dogs could see the whole thing. Uh, so, you know, that, that like kind of nature, you know, is all around them and, and they're exposed to it like 24-7 at nighttime. You know, you just hear the lions, you hear the hyenas, you, it's just it's a constant, like, sound. Um, and they, yeah, they just grow accustomed to it. So it's not like, you know, the surprise. Um, obviously, the, the first few times, I like to, uh, you know, obviously I like to try and, I, I teach a dog to react the same way to wildlife as I would to gunfire, that's neutral. I don't want them to, you know, be, you know, aggressive or, you know, fearful or whatever. I just want them to, okay, whatever, it's nothing. Um, we do a lot of clicker training with obedience um, just to kind of shape behavior. It's nice because it allows the handlers to do it as well. But we can teach obedience using the clicker where the instructor clicks when the handler needs to treat so we can get the timing done right. It's very really interactive. But we do that, you know, in areas where there's going to be wildlife present. Um, and... We've had one dog that has had an issue with uh, guinea fowl, like a small ground bird, and that's literally the only issue that I've come across where we've had to go and do some, you know, corrective training and really, you know, teach the dog that uh, they have no value. And it was tough. It wasn't an easy uh, training process, but she got through it in the end. Um, the first we had, but my absolute best tracker dog in in all of the programs. I mean, the first time we took him to a pride of lions, it was actually a, a young elephant, like a baby elephant, 
that had been killed during the night. And I wanted to expose the dog to a carcass and then lay a track from the carcass away, you know, simulating a poaching event. So we, we went there, and, I mean, you could see the footprints on the ground. It was probably 11 o'clock in the morning, and, I mean, I could smell the lions in the air. I mean, they were within five minutes of where we were. I mean, they just weren't far away. Um, it was safe for us to walk around. We could, you know, we, we, could, we could do that. But, I mean, the, there was these little, like, patches on the ground where... Um, urinated and I mean he he was completely distracted by it so we just we just carried on did some training we did some obedience around the carcass did him hub up on top of the carcass um, and then yeah just with a Kong just some heel work some sit stays just basic obedience nothing crazy and he just he forgot about it and he cracked on with work and then we laid the track and he was fine it was a very fresh track it was like five minutes old there was nothing you know totally favorable conditions were for him to be successful uh, through a, a massive, massive uh, disturbed area, you know, where there's a lot of scent. We had a dog in Kenya. Um, I was doing an evaluation of that program, and we finished the track, and just up ahead of where we were basically going to uh, end, uh, we could see this, like, disturbed area where some ground had been scratched away, and there was little white kind of dropping piles, and it was a... a basically a territorial marking area from where the hyenas would come up. And they, I mean, it was fresh, fresh, fresh. I mean, like they had probably been there 10 minutes before we got there. And I said to the handler, I was like, do you want to track through this or should we finish here? And he, he just confidently said, no, let's go through it. And in his mind, if it didn't work out, we could finish successfully after it, um, get it back on track. But when we did it, I mean, the dog went through that area and he didn't even raise his head up. He was just so focused on the human scent and uh, the footprints. I mean, just he just blew past all the hyena droppings, the urine, the scratch marks, uh, everything. And I was incredibly impressed with that dog for doing that. I mean, it was just, to me, it was a pretty serious distractor. Um, so I think, you know, if you're doing a 10-kilometer track through the bush, like literally point A to point B, regardless of what you see, there's so much wildlife that passes over that track if it's been out there for four hours. I mean, things are just coming and going and passing over it all the time. The dogs just lock into that human scent. They just, it, it just must be so much easier for them to follow that than have to worry about all the different you know, wild animals that have crossed it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they just do really good but that initial period is tough um, if the dogs show apprehension but like I say we we build them up nice and slow and it works really well. Once the dogs are trained it's now time to pair them with their new human counterparts. This part of the job can be just as challenging. I mean, whether we're in Africa or in the States or in the UK training I mean, my single point of failure tends to be the handler. You know you select the dogs and the dogs are great and They've got all the potential in the world, and then you give them to him. the rookie handler. Maybe somebody who shouldn't be there. And yeah, there's problems with that. Um, you know, we one of the things we insist on is doing a handler selection. Um, our handler selection is very intense. It's physical, but at the same time, we're measuring leadership initiative. Um, you know, communication ability, whether it's verbal or non-verbal, and. Uh, yeah, integrity. Yeah, that's a big part of it. These guys are going to be working alone with the dog that they're responsible for. And um, we need to make sure that these guys have great integrity and that we can trust them. Um, poaching syndicates will try and infiltrate the, the workforce. Uh, the, dog, the dog team tends to be like part of a special operations unit. Um, it's a high-value unit. So uh, the potential for them to get bribed or, you know, something you know, intimidated to their families, what whatnot, um, is high. And, you know, you've got to be aware of that all the time. So we kind of do um, want uh, an extreme level of loyalty. Um, but like by giving, you can go through 100 handlers and pick the best four, and you're still going to have issues with those four guys that you couldn't have, you know, kind of predetermined through a selection process. Uh, we've been very lucky where... At least three out of the four handlers have been excellent, and the fourth one has been above average. Um, you know, so obviously that guy who's above average, then he 
nearly as good as the other guys because they're superb. Um, but at the end of the day, he's still better than average. Um, you know, and just with time, they get more comfortable and confident. And normally it's just due to a, a personality thing. But uh, yeah, no, the biggest challenge is empathy. Um, how do you measure empathy? How do you get a, how do you assess for that? Um, we try it through one of our tests. Uh, we, we call it the ABC test. And literally you have three points, A, B, and C at A. They, they walk the dog on the leash over to point A and they pet the dog. And it's just, just purely physical praise. And that's, we just want to see how they interact with the dog without saying anything. And they go to B and it's purely verbal praise. And we want to see what, the, you know, do they tell the dog a story, whatever. Um, and then C is a combination of uh, physical and verbal praise. And we just, again, just does it flow? Does it, is it synchronized? Uh, you know, is the guy in harmony with the dog? And, you know, I'm not saying you can, it's obviously very subjective, uh, but you get a good idea of, you know, what what you see if, if the guy's going to make it or not. So we've had guys, you know, they're running like a, four and a half, five minute mile, uh, barefoot along an airstrip, uh, super fit cats. I mean, they do it all day long. Um, they've passed all the written tests. They speak well. And then you give them the leash and they fall apart. And they, they just literally cannot talk to the dog. And we've dropped them for it. Um, you know, I'm not saying you couldn't develop that, but in a 12-week course, uh, you know, you have, you have limited time to develop that to make sure that the client gets the right capability at the end of it. So yeah, our, our challenge is by far the handler. Um, the we don't have an issue with attrition. Uh, most of these countries work in unemployment is through the roof, and people are just grateful for a job. Um, salary wise, I mean they're two three hundred dollars a month at the very most. Uh, you know, it's kind of like what they're earning. Um, and then when they get the dog handler position, they tend to, um, you know, get a pay raise, which obviously is a huge incentive for them. Royal Canin delivers precise nutritional solutions so your dog can perform at their very best level. To achieve a perfect balance of nutrients for each dog, they rely on an extensive network of canine experts from across the globe, including veterinarians, universities, dog professionals, and their own research development center in France. Royal Canin helps your dogs train and perform at their full potential. To learn more about Royal Canin and the nutritional solutions they have to offer your dogs, visit them online at royalcanin.com. Astute trainers with proper training tools are the key to unleashing your dog's full potential. For over 30 years, Doctor has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and ball training to support dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Trusted by professional dog trainers, canine officers, and hunters, Dogtra enhances your training journey with durable training products, equipped with patented, accurate, and intuitive control to ensure the best experience. Join us together as we can make every dog exceptional. Learn more online at dogtra.com. It's hard to imagine the extreme conditions these teams work in. It's also difficult to understand the danger involved in working in these remote areas of Africa. Jay gives us some insight. Um, the heat, I mean, unlike anything, depending on where we were, we, I mean, we were in Kenya a few weeks ago, it was 131 Fahrenheit. I mean, there's only so much you're going to get out of the dog in those temperatures. Um, we try to, we, we do find areas that are favorable for training in those conditions. Um, but, I mean, nobody's moving in during the middle of the day. Uh, poachers are, you know, hunkered down. Everybody's hunkered down. No one's moving. Uh, people, the poachers tend to hunt at nighttime. So we, or late afternoon, early evening, and then very early morning, um, they will hunt in the dark as well if there's a full moon. So those conditions are all favorable. Um, you know, so that's how we counter that. You know, when they want to hunt, it's when we want to hunt them. So we'll go after the poachers, you know, when they want to go after the animals. Um, but uh, the, depending on where we are on the continent, uh, the more central we are, obviously near the equator, the humidity becomes an issue. Um, we get high humidity in our other programs, but it, it comes and goes. But, I mean, it's normal in uh, you know, some of our areas to have a 60% plus humidity level. 
heat, uh, we can get more out of the dogs. Um, but we counter that by every single training track that we do. The handle takes a rectal temperature. Uh, we've provided them with a weather meter. They take the uh, air temperature and the humidity reading, and then they, they write them down in the notebooks. We provide all of that equipment uh, so that they, they take a note of it with the time. They run their track. If it's a 3K track, you know, they'll, uh, you know, 15 minutes later, they'll write down the dog's working temperature at the end of the track and then what the, uh, the air temperature, the humidity is. And over a period of time, what you find is the handlers get to know when it's this temperature and this humidity, my dog's fit. I can I can do a five kilometer track before I need to rest it and give some water. And they get to like really intimately understand what their dog's capabilities are. And the good handlers, I mean, they've got it down to half a degree. And they know literally how far they can push the dog. So it's, you know, we try and, the issues that we face, we try and make sure we counter it um, as effectively as possible. Depending on which uh, area we're in, the number one killer is a tetsy fly. That is a, it's a, it's just a large horsefly type insect. And it, uh, these national parks have been set up in these areas where the tetsy flies are because you can't take cattle there. So, you know, when the land was originally divided up and, you know, people decided what's going to be agriculture and what's not, the areas with, that were heavy with tetsy fly tended to become national parks and the areas that didn't have it became farmland. So now today, you know, with that history, so we are working in these areas where there's a heavy tetsy fly presence. And domesticated animals have a 21-day lifespan in these uh, areas. It's, they're that dangerous. So we, we have a you know, so many protocols in place to make sure that the dogs um, stay alive. And, um, you know, they have like mosquito netting around the kennels. We have tetsy fly targets uh, situated two kilometers around the kennels, uh, you know, like a, kind of like a dartboard. And then the kennels in the middle of the dartboard. And, you know, every ring out there is there's more tetsy fly targets. Um, tetsy flies are attracted to acetone. It's like a urine-type scent, um, contrasting colors and movement. And, you know, we just got to make sure that with those tetsy fly targets kind of cover all those areas, and we, we just try and keep them away from the kennels and pull them out and kill them away from the kennel. But we do have to work through them. Um, the dogs are on a prophylactic, but it's not meant for dogs. It's not a canine prophylactic. It's, uh, there's nothing out there as a product. But... Uh, so like touch wood, um, we've been very fortunate. Mike, um, my business partner in, with Invictus on the conservation side, he he's done a lot of research. He's talked to a lot of different people. I feel like he's got some really good protocols that he's put in place for us that ensure that the dogs have a very high survival rate um, versus you know other programs where they've lost dogs um, you know, to the tetsy fly. So we've, we've been fortunate. The tsetse fly is a blood-sucking insect which lives only in Africa that transmits sleeping sickness in humans and a similar disease called nagana in domestic animals. They kill thousands of people and millions of other animals each year. However, in some circumstances, the tsetse fly is the least of your worries. You get these lone buffaloes, um, call them dugger boys, and it's just basically a buffalo that's left the herd. He's on his own. But he's wise and he's tough. He's survived. He's survived for a long time. And everybody's terrified of them. I'm terrified of buffalo at the best of times. Black Death. That's a nickname earned by the African Cape Buffalo. They are extremely dangerous, killing over 200 people a year. One angry, it will circle and stalk their prey, waiting to tear apart its opponent with its massive, thick horns. So, yeah, we were doing some night training five meters away from one when he came up and he was just right there and was, I mean if we were just lucky he went one way the opposite way of where we were basically going um, he was just as confused as we are when it happened but it could have ended up a whole different situation I mean we've got guys that have been nailed by buffaloes and put in hospitals and lost lungs and that kind of stuff um, neighboring uh, properties and parks and stuff like that um the, we had 
a photographer came out from National Geographic one time and they were, you know, they like wanted to take some photos of the dogs working in the park. We basically, they were too unfit to keep up with us so we couldn't do a, a real track. So we laid a track along the side of a road so they could sit in the vehicle and take photos out the window. Just, um, you know, not, not, not nothing, you know, crazy, but it was just going to show the dog tracking. The dog was slightly on lower ground. Um, and in those, that situation, they actually put a scout on the roof of the Land Cruiser so, you know, he could just be the eyes and ears because we had the, the dog, the handler, and then Mike, who was the, um, the instructor, doing the follow-up. So they were moving through the bush and the handler on the roof told me he could see an elephant up ahead. And, uh, you know, so as we were driving up towards this elephant, I could see it. Got on the radio, told Mike, elephant 50 meters in front of you. They were heading straight towards it. His back was at them, so he hadn't seen them or anything. Um, you know, and this is one of those moments where Mike really, like, just his, his background, his experience is perfect. You know, he measured the wind, uh, felt which way it was going, immediately knew what was going on. You could see the elephant. He felt it was safe, and they tracked past the elephant. And this elephant was about 15 meters upwind of them when they tracked past it. And, yeah, we got all these. This was just crazy um and like obviously the elephant didn't react there was nothing bad that happened but uh the photographer in the vehicle was in blind panic mode worried about the dog never mind the two guys on the ground next to the elephant but uh that was pretty pretty intense but but i think um that uh, buffalo i mean uh, could have reached out and touched it that was pretty pretty hectic um I mean, it's just every, every time we go over there, something happens. Last time we went to Zambia, Mike was laying a track. He was following a scout up a hill, uh, up an escarpment. It's like a mountainside type thing. And the scout was maybe 10 meters in front. And he stepped over a snake, had no idea it was there was a puff adder. And then Mike was following up behind. And he, he his foot landed next to the puff adder. And if he was an inch to the left, it would have nailed him. The puff adder is known for its wide distribution across Africa and its nasty disposition. It's responsible for causing the most snake bite fatalities in Africa. Their bites are so strong, it's been documented that puff adders have even pierced the thick skin of the rhino. You know, and it's like in those areas there, you're so remote, you're so you know, just far away from anything. You're, just, you're not going to get you know, help quick enough. It's just, it's, I mean, it's pretty much going to kill you. Um, so, I mean, we went over, uh, we were tr- doing a follow-up track one day, we went over this low rise, this hill. Um, it was probably, I don't know, 50 meters long, 10 meters high, we couldn't see on the other side. We literally got to the top of it, we all bomb-bursted over the top. Um, we had our flanks up ahead, so the bear hadn't seen the elephants on the other side of it. There was three elephants literally just standing on the other side of it. And they they got more of a fight than we did, and they just took off. But it, I mean, it doesn't take much to to get it to go the opposite way when they come at you. Uh, I had an elephant charge me in the vehicle from about 300 meters, and never had it happen since or before that. This matriarch of this herd, I mean, I came over this rise, and she made a huge sound and just came running down this hill straight at us. I was with the handlers. Nobody could believe what she was doing. She just kept coming. And I ended up having to was away from her down this hill, which typically is like the worst thing you could do. You normally hold your ground. But she was so convinced you could tell there's certain behaviors that they give when you know that they're coming for you. And uh, she was 100% committed to uh, killing that vehicle and whatever was inside of it. And, yeah, we had to reverse. I mean, she was 15... 10, 15 meters behind us before I managed to get the accelerator and like pull off away from her after I turned around. Um, yeah, so just the wildlife factor. We went, uh, one night we went to a waterhole and it was our first time doing overnight, uh, an overnight trip with the dogs, getting the dogs used to sleeping in a tent with the handler. Um, and yeah, we had our little, you know, one man dome mosquito nets and that's that's what we slept in just sleeping on the floor uh, had our little fire next to us i woke up um actually i didn't wake up i was getting ready for you know putting my head down you know went to take a leak 
and uh, took my torch out and just shined like in front of me. And there were about 40 sets of eyes just down under us. And the one dog that we had was in heat. And there was probably, I don't know, 15 jackals, um, you know, 20 hyena. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. And the, I've never personally seen anything like that in my life, but um, the guys I were with, I mean, they, I mean they're just, that's what they've done their entire life, and they've never seen anything like that. It was just such a unique situation. And all night we could just see them around, there's all these hyenas and stuff, and, you know, you got your dog in a, in a tent. It's not even a dome tent, it's a mosquito net tent. So, I mean, you can see out, <laughs> it's full of, you know, got all these guys coming up like around the, the tents in the middle of the night walking around and, I mean just waiting for something to go wrong nothing went wrong it was just, you know they respecting the people they stay away from people but obviously the smell of that blood was uh, just driving them crazy they just wouldn't leave eventually they did but it was still a pretty peculiar peculiar uh, event for us so yeah I mean that kind of stuff it just it just happens all the time Africa is inhabited by some dangerous creatures, but some of the most dangerous tend to be humans. You know, you, you, you're going after people who want to commercially hunt elephant to supply Thailand with ivory. Um, you know, they, they need to meet their quotas. They want to make sure that they get the ivory. Um, so, yeah, no, it's absolutely a, a dangerous um job for the, the, the scouts who work the dogs. Um, our teams in Kenya, I mean, they are going up against Somalian pirates. Um, these hunting parties come down from Somalia, uh, they come into Kenya, they're coming into the park, they could be a 20-man team, I mean, I mean, they're armed with all sorts of automatic weapons. Um, if, they, if they ambush scouts, they'll execute the scouts. Uh, it's, it's very much a military-style um, situation. And then, now, it's not all the parks are like that, obviously. Some other parks, in other areas of that park, for example, it's definitely a bushmeat issue. And you're going after, you know, people with snares and stuff like that. Um, but that doesn't mean you won't come across, you know, the, the odd armed poacher with a weapon. And the, uh, in Kenya, they, they tend to, hit the elephants with bows and arrows if it's a Kenyan poacher um, and it's an old like family recipe and they know how to mix all these I don't know, herbs and roots and plants and whatnot and they come with this really toxic poison that kills an elephant within four minutes very powerful poison but I mean you're coming up against someone like that it's low light conditions and you're tracking and they're ahead of you and you know he's got a bow and arrow and he's got something like that in him you know, my mind is equally as much of a threat to somebody who has, you know, an AK-47. And, um, and obviously, every poacher they go after, we, we, we train the tactics and um, how to approach it and, you know, how to flank them. And, you know, we, we have all our, our different uh, pieces that we teach just to make sure as they get near the end of the track, the dog becomes uh, less of a kind of resource to, to catch the poachers and the team takes over, the security element takes over. But no, we, um, we've got a, a contract coming up in uh, the DRC. That is a incredibly hostile area where we're going to. Um, the poachers there against Somalians, Al Shabaab, the Lord's Resistance Army, South Sudanese militia. Um, I mean, they're downed helicopters. They have RPGs. It's a very in, intense um, area where we're going. And they do not have a canine capability. And uh, yeah, we're going to be putting the canines in there. Uh, they, they lose, just because of the terrain, they lose the track very quickly with the uh, the um, the poachers. So the dogs are going to be a huge asset there. But again, it's going to be a very hostile environment. And our training package there is going to be slightly different. It's going to be a lot more aggressive in the way we approach it. Um, so the guys can defend themselves a lot better. But... Um, yeah, I mean, again, it, it's like anyway, it d depends where you are. Um, you get to learn your terrain. You get to know, you know, who the common enemy is and, you know, what that threat is. And obviously there's different levels um, 
you know, that the guys can, you know, basically deal with on, on each different threat. You know, the, the poaching issue is very similar to, um, like, a, I guess, in structure to, like, a cartel, you know, uh, trying to get drugs through a border. So you have different levels of poachers. You have your, you know, your base poacher who's trying to feed his family. I mean, these are very poor communities around the park. Um, the countries are very poor. Uh, there's not a lot of um, community help. Um, there's no electricity. There's no water. You know, it's very, you know, especially in times of drought, or, you know, those kind of bad periods that we've had in the last few years, uh, you see a, an increase in, in poaching numbers. Now, those poachers are going for bushmeat, so they're going for small animals in the park. They'll set up snares, things like that. Um, so, I mean, they're not, they they are a priority, but they're not um, like your, your next level poacher, which is going to be a commercial poacher who, I mean, he's going to go put a string of snares into a park and he's basically a butcher and he's going to get as, as much out of it as he can. He'll probably spend a few days in the park, depending on which park it is. Um, if he's got the space, he will, and he'll camp out and actually start drying the meat while he's in the park and then, um, take it back into town and try and sell it. <clears throat> There's a huge demand for it, so he will sell it off very quickly. He'll just come back in. I mean, we found a, a line of snares. There was 40 snares in one go. We found another one. There was 37 in one go. Um, and they were all set, ready to catch. We just got there in time and managed to uh, destroy them. Uh, and then, and then obviously, you get your, you know, your poachers that are going for, I don't want to call it a luxury item, but... You know, there's a lot of um, superstition in Africa, uh, and there's a lot of witchcraft. So you'll get poachers that'll uh, poison a carcass of vultures to come in. One, it kills the vultures because then, then there's no, like, bush signal. So obviously if we're on patrol, we're looking for vultures in the sky. If we see vultures circling, we're going to go and investigate. It could be a poaching, it could be a natural death, but we're still going to check it out. So the poachers want to eliminate that problem. Um, and vultures are, you know, endangered now because of it. And uh, what they'll do is, like, in uh, the, the World Cup that was in South Africa, the Soccer World Cup, they had an increase in vulture poaching. And from a kind of superstitious point of view, if you um, crush the brain and the eyes and then you consume it, it apparently people believe that it gives them kind of foresight and they, they have dreams and what was happening is people were betting on the games the soccer games because they thought they knew the scores because they'd been you know consuming these uh, vulture brains and eyeballs and yeah they went and they were betting and it was all around the soccer so it was it was pretty crazy to see those numbers like pick up like that um, so it is a big problem um, the leopards uh, lion they'll try and get lion teeth they'll take the lion uh, paws leopard paws um, obviously the I'll try and skin them and then sell the uh, fur. Uh, so, you know, those are, those are kind of your luxury type poachers. Um, and then then you have your very serious organized crime poachers. You'll have guys going after rhino, elephant, pangolin. Um, they're going to have a three, four-man team go into a park. They're very professional. They know what they're doing, and they've done it for a long time. They get it out the park and they get it to the middleman who pays them, you know, a hundredth of what it's worth and then pushes it on from there and then he'll go and sell it. I mean, rhino horn is, on the black market, the most expensive commodity on the planet. It's very, very expensive. And then, uh, yeah, most of that is shipped over to Asia. There's a lot of it that's going through the ports and, air and uh, yeah, airports in Africa and they get it out to... Um, the, the Asian demand is massive for ivory and rhino horn. Same for pangolin. Um, rhino horn and the pangolins crushed down, um, and it's uh, it's actually mixed with Viagra by the the people who buy it, and then they sell it as a uh, you know like a aphrodisiac type you know substance. Um, the ivory is just a sign of wealth. That's you know put into knife and fork handles, hairbrushes, you name it. It's uh, just trinkets, but it's, it is seen as a sign of wealth, like high value item in Asia. Um, so yeah, we, what we're doing is we're trying to just basically be the law enforcement piece on the ground, um, 
we support intelligence networks. Um, you know, so if they have intelligence that someone's coming in, then we'll be in the right place at the right time, or uh, we'll go into a village and do a search, you know, whatever it may be. Um, but then obviously outside of that, the next level is going to be government to government talking about, you know, the trade routes and how to eliminate that. And there's a lot of different programs in place and they're trying to help that out. Uh, but it's still very early days and it's a big problem. I mean, it's estimated now that in 10 years' time, the elephant will be extinct just with the current uh, numbers and the way, they, uh, the way they're getting poached. Anti-poaching is a demanding and extremely dangerous job, but it doesn't come without rewards. Oh, man. You know, like this, this last trip, we laid a track and... It was a 25-kilometer track that Mike and I laid. Um, so start to finish, 25 k's. And we, we had kind of pre-formulated a plan of where we'd want to go, you know, using certain water holes as like, you know, like part of the strategy, you know, so we need to resupply as poachers and, and hunt, you know, because the game's going to go to the water hole so you can hunt there and target certain animals. So that was kind of like our, our game plan. But some of those places where we walked through, I mean, they're so beautiful. It's just incredibly, just, just, and it's remote. It's in the middle of nowhere. There's no roads. Um, so your your typical tourist um, isn't going to see places like that. So, like, I think we're the, the reason we're so lucky. So we, Mike and I, you know, in the evenings, we'll, you know, have a beer, or a glass of whiskey, something, and we always make the same toast, and that's, we, we call it training dogs in Africa because. You know, training dogs is like I think the coolest job in the world. You know, we're totally fortunate. Jobs a hobby. Um, you know, we're just we're just lucky that we can do that. But but we're getting to do it in these places. And like where we were walking through in Kenya, I mean, it's just literally off the beaten track. Nobody's gone in there. The animals have been wiped out. And now we're going back in where people haven't been for decades. I mean, more than that, like like 50 years and people haven't been in some of these places just the poachers poachers have owned it and now we're coming in there and we're taking over and you know we're leaving our footprints on the ground so there's the poachers nowhere there so if they do come across us it's it's different you know it's like the roles are reversing and i mean we went to this one place and i mean it's just there's just nothing there except for just this rugged harsh land and we're in the middle of it and I know full well that you know no certainly no white person has been there for a long very very long time um, you know and I don't know it's it's, it's unique for us um, you know it's it's just such a nice thing to sit down next to a massive river and you know you, you're cooking your food on an open fire it's very um I don't know, it's just, it's very primal. And yeah, we're getting to do that, like I say, in places where people don't go. Um, and if we do see people there, they just aren't supposed to be there and we go after them. But um, it's, yeah, it's a very special situation. All of this hard work in Africa is paying off. The successes of these anti-poaching teams is creating a safer environment for these noble animals who otherwise have little defense from humans. You know, our teams and Zambia, I mean, they're finding stuff every week. Um, I mean, I think that's a huge list of what they've, I know, probably arrested 30 to 40 people in the last year, um, just with vehicle searches. And that's just, you know, searching vehicles, baggage, buses, and, you know, finding people there. Inside the park is a different story. Um, in Zimbabwe, our, uh, our tracker dogs there, they've had some fairly significant tracks. Um, while we were there, we tracked a guy for 17 kilometers and tracked him right up to his house. Um, we actually found two areas where he had killed animals along the way. So that was a nice piece of evidence. And then, um, yeah, we found those two animals that he gutted in the park and then we found them in his house. So he was arrested. Um, so, I mean, yeah, like it's, it's hard to, I give you the exact numbers of what the dogs are doing, but they are making arrests. They are apprehending poachers. Uh, they are having an impact on it. Just the psychological threat that, like for example, that village where 
the dog tracked them to through the fence, um, past all the cars and all that kind of stuff. That village there, I mean, the, the poaching incursions from that village have dramatically reduced, and it's the threat of the dog catching them. I mean, they just couldn't believe a dog followed them for that long. It, it has had an impact on the poaching and the poachers' kind of mindset, so they're going to think twice about coming to certain areas. Um, but yeah, the uh, just the, the the vastness of the areas where we work in. Um, I mean, our biggest kennel has four dogs, and they're working in an area that's 22,000 square kilometers. That's I mean, it's like 10,000 square miles. It's a huge, huge area. And obviously, four dogs can't help police that. Um, you know, very under resourced, under manned. Um, Africa is known to be the home of the world's most majestic wildlife. Endangered animals are killed so that a single body part, like tusks, pelts, or bones, can be sold illegally for massive amounts of money. Rhinoceros horn is so valuable that it often sells for $30,000 per pound. Deterring this illegal poaching is a massive undertaking and dog teams are just one of the ways animals are getting help. Procuring, training, and maintaining these anti-poaching teams is a daunting task. These fearless teams work so closely with the animals they protect that they gain strength in their unity. A Life of Dogs is brought to you through the support of Highland Canine Training, offering professional dog training solutions and premier canine education. Learn more at www.highlandcanine.com. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of A Life of Dogs. If you haven't checked out our first two episodes, be sure to get caught up on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or on our website at alifeofdogs.com. Also be sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram for updates on our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to leave us a review or send us your feedback on our podcast.